You are listening to the Innovators Behind Disruption, a podcast series brought to you by Evolve ETFs. The world is evolving. Your investments should too. Hi there, this is Raj Lal, and I'm joined by Mike Gornstein. Mike is actually the President, CEO, and Chairman of the Kronos Group, which is one of Canada's largest cannabis companies with a, also a very strong global presence. Uh, Mike, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So let's kick this off with, why don't you tell everybody what got you interested in uh, getting involved in the cannabis industry? Uh, sure. I started off uh, my career as a corporate M&A lawyer, and I was mostly focused on the, uh, the alcohol and the pharma sectors. And so it was a really interesting intersection watching what was going on in Colorado and and how that played both into uh, vice and healthcare. Uh, so it was always something that was fascinating. We watched it continue developing in the U.S. I eventually left a uh, law firm and became uh, an investor and uh, you know became very passionate about the industry. Saw a lot of opportunity and and uh, that led to me deciding to jump into the operational side and not just uh, passive as an investor. Great. So let's go right into legislation. Um, obviously, we have the pending legalization of marijuana for the for rec use uh, coming up this summer. Uh, do you anticipate any more hangups as it relates to Bill C forty five? No, I think C forty five is uh, the the toothpaste is out of the tube, so to speak. You know, I think the the uncertainty uh, that that really will will be you know what we have to to watch for developments is exactly how some of the different uh, nuances of distribution unfold. You know how will it work with the private retail stores in the provinces and uh, looking a little bit out in the horizon, what products, what concentration limits, and when will uh, will more value add products be allowed? So staying on legislation, uh, what are your thoughts on the entire policing? Of, uh, of cannabis uh, that are that should be kicking in this fall. You know, it's. It, I think it's uh, it's going to be a an interesting dynamic because the, you know, as it is, people always talk about undersupply. So there is a supplied market from the the black and gray markets. Uh, if you were to completely shut off those markets, you know, the biggest challenge is there won't be enough pure legal supply to, you know, to fill consumer demands. So I think it will. Uh, I think it's it's a step that will occur. But you know, the idea that everything needs to be shut down day one. It, it, the reality is there won't be LP, LP supply for all of you know all of Canada. And I think it's also a process. These are very ingrained businesses, and especially in DC, um, it could also be hurtful for the industry if you don't see a smooth transition of uh, gray space operators into. Uh, the you know, more traditional legal channel that's developing, and I think it's important to get buy-in from all constituents because uh, a, a large and what I expect is the majority of the consumers are already purchasing from sources today, and you have to be careful not to ostracize them. So what do you think the average price per gram is going to be by the end of this year? Uh, retail price? Yeah. You know, you could... What we've seen in other markets is there is there 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 are tiers of product for dried flour, uh, so you know I think it can range anywhere from uh, it's probably safe to say seven to twelve dollars. Uh, you're 
you know, your premium product, you, there's usually less volume in there. So premium, likely 10 to 12 is the band. You know, maybe you have some product that comes in cheaper, you know, 5 to $7, but uh, I think you're looking between 8 and $10 as an average price per gram. Hmm. Yeah, what's the black market now? You know, again, it depends on province, and, and there is a, as much as everyone likes to talk about this as a commodity, you know, there's a, a very, very big range. If you were to go into a dispensary, you're going to see, uh, you're going to see some dispensaries that carry flour that can be five or six dollars a gram, and in that same dispensary, a different strain or genetic can be fifteen dollars a gram. So, you know, without having the data on exactly what's being sold at, you know, an average is tough, but that, that's like asking me what an average bottle of liquor or beer is going to cost. Yeah, it's about quality too, right? That's right. So it's, you know, some genetics, if you ask about average cost per gram, well, is it a, is it a, a cush strain that yields half of what uh, and, uh, the, the high-yielding, high-THC strain is? So it, it's product categories, and I, I imagine that you're going to see a competitiveness in pricing between the, the legal market and the, and the black market. Um, it's just which, you know, what's the product quality is, is what I think is going to ultimately drive sales. So is legalization for edibles still on the horizon for the summer of 2019? Yeah, I think you're looking at uh, one year after implementation. So right. uh, if, it, if it ends up being September, then I think you're kind of pegging that date for one year. Uh, the categories become increasingly more complex and there are more SKUs that need to go on the shelf. Just when you get outside of flour and tincture oil and mm-hmm. pre-rolls, so a big thing that people aren't realizing or thinking about is because we're scaling up at such a significant volume, and most of these sales are coming from a few LPs. When we go in uh, EDI and our barcoding, our, our supply chain logistics, and we're working with the provinces, if we were to launch. Uh, 500 SKUs, you know, like 10 different edibles, 20 vaporizers, 20 strains of flour. It would be very, very tough logistically. So we need that time to dial everything in and make sure it's still a good consumer experience and it's, it's smooth shipments. Right. Yeah, it's an interesting space because a lot of people that I've spoken to all think that the edibles uh, uh, market opening up could be a, a huge wave uh, for the uh, cannabis sector. Do you Do you agree? Do you think so? Uh, I completely agree. You know, the, what we've seen in, in other markets is that the, the fastest growing categories are non-flower. Uh, mm-hmm. There will always be a flower market. I think, it, you know, having a premium, you know, our strategy is a premium indoor non-irradiated flower. Uh, but, yeah, edibles, absolutely. One, of the, now one reason you are seeing it being such a big category in the U.S. is there is a lot of cannabis tourism still, people from the East Coast purchasing in the West. And it's much easier to bring an edible across state lines or on a plane than it is flour. Uh, but ease of transport, people that are new to the category and are just, you know, don't feel comfortable smoking, uh, edibles is, is going to be strong. And I think vaporizers also will be a big catalyst. So I've also seen there's so many studies out there that show different terms of measurement for the size of the global market for cannabis. How big do you actually think it is right now, and how big do you think it's going to get over the next uh, few years? You know, I, I think uh, in Canadian dollars, $200 billion is a fair estimate, and if you're pegging it to what's actually being purchased uh, and sold today. Uh, the, the question is, though, which 
which distribution channels you're including. So when you start looking at the, the, I think there's three channels. You've got your traditional ethical pharma going through full clinical trials uh, and having something that's sold in a pharmacy uh, with a drug identification number and insurance coverage. That, to me, will be one of the biggest segments that you really aren't factoring in there. That's taking away from the opiate market, taking away from other more traditional ones. So that channel is likely going to push over that $200 billion, and I think significantly. Uh, you've got the recreational market, uh, which is largely what that $200 billion encompasses. And then you have the nutraceutical market, and that's, that's similar to what you know, we think of today as medicinal cannabis. I believe THC will probably shift more into one of the other two categories we just talked about. Uh, but CBD, CBG, CBC, some of these other cannabinoids, getting into topicals, it's kind of the health and wellness area. You know, when you start thinking of all the products that can be made from these different channels and the different ways that they're sold, I think we're, you know, we're really blowing past that 200 billion uh, number. It might not be your traditional cannabis products, uh, but that's where innovation comes in. Hmm. So when you look at, uh, when some of us outsiders look at the cannabis space, we look at it as a very young uh, industry, uh, although although I'm sure you would say that it's, you know, some of the development is recent, uh, has been going on for a while, but what's what I find interesting is that, you know, in my consideration of a young industry, we're starting to see a lot of consolidation. Obviously, today there was an announcement of Aurora Med Relief. Do you see consolidation becoming... Uh, uh, a recurring theme within the cannabis space, and do you see it uh, increasing, decreasing post-legalization? Yeah, I think with consolidation in any industry is, is generally inevitable, right? There, there's a lot of different reasons it happens, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think that we could see a consolidation boom pre-legalization. We could, we could see one after. Uh, the question is if it's happening, whether it's smaller companies thinking they need to get to scale to compete, and that's where you can see consolidation, or if it's the larger companies uh, coming together. When, when we look at it, uh, and I have like an M&A background, so we're very, you know, I say we're very particular about what we think of, it's not going to be driven by capacity long-term. It's going to be driven by uh, different distribution channels, performance of different brands, and, and how they attack different segments of the market, and ultimately, what is the differentiating intellectual property you have. So if I... Uh, you know, if I put all my energy into becoming a, a medicinal provider and someone else puts all their energy into being a recreational provider and someone else is in the veterinary space, you know, I think you look at those and they make sense folding together. Uh, and depending on, on how things develop and which companies go after what is what I ultimately think will drive that consolidation. Yeah. I did a podcast uh, a couple weeks ago with uh, somebody talking about, you know, we were talking about the electrification of the vehicle. We were talking about charging stations and and uh, the lack of infrastructure, which has hurt the adoption overall of uh, of electric vehicles. And then we started talking about where those charging stations would end up, and a few people seem to think that the charging stations are going to end up at the Shell stations and the Esso stations uh, because it's complementary to their existing business. So, you know, kind of tying that back into the whole uh, M&A side or consolidation side of uh, cannabis, do you see the tobacco companies and the alcohol companies becoming uh, bigger players in this space? Uh, I think in the, in the very near term, you're certainly going to see a lot of activity from alcohol. Uh, tobacco is probably a little bit of a ways off, but again, it's it might not be the way you think. Um, I think that there are 
that cannabis is a category going to touch different industries. So if you think about the core competencies, most people say, oh, tobacco makes sense because they grow a plant, so they should be taking over cannabis companies. I think you can see some of them that are uh, have a lot of cash on their balance sheet and may be looking for cash flow as acquirers once cannabis companies are mature. But I think if you see anything in the near term, it's more likely in the fact that they've invested uh, billions into different different delivery systems, uh, very high-end you know, vaporizers or nebulizers, and that technology can be very useful and has a huge place in, in the consumer market. When arguably tobacco has already entered, uh, probably the biggest cannabis company is Pax, yeah. uh, and Pax has spun off their, their tobacco products versus their cannabis ones. Uh, I think you'll see more of that from tobacco, and alcohol is just a fit from their consumer branding and distribution expertise. So let's talk really quickly about uh, Kronos. Uh, this, this year has been a really interesting year in the cannabis market. That it's also been marked by some volatility as well. Can you can you tell everyone what was your reason uh, for uh, listing on the Nasdaq? Yeah. So most of our investors are based in the U.S. Uh, so that was that was certainly a reason. But uh, you know, we we wanted to make sure that we were distinguishing ourselves from a governance perspective. Just given the sheer supply of listings that you're seeing, uh, it's very possible that there can be issues and and maybe things that happen with uh, with a few LPs that you want to make sure doesn't affect uh, you know affect yourself. Uh, so being able to stand up on the Nasdaq and differentiate ourselves there to investors is important. Uh, and also, there are a lot of questions and a lot of uh, assumptions about the fact that cannabis is illegal in the U.S. and how does that make it investable for a company like us that's global. And the NASDAQ listing was a way of sort of preempting some of those questions. Uh, it's a precursor to some other institutional involvement uh, that we've, we've been working on. And uh, in a, a lot of U.S. institutions want to know that they can rely on uh, a company complying with Sarbanes-Oxley and with SEC securities. So... Now that that was certainly a push for it, and finally, beginning to forge relationships in the U.S. Our, our end consumer market uh, is the U.S. is is going to be the largest one. Uh, so, getting awareness now, even though we can't stand up an operation, uh, whether it's through relationships like MedMen or whether it's uh, listing on the Nasdaq and starting to tell investors and consumers our story, I think it's very important. Great. This was great, Mike. Thank you very much. Maybe before we close off, you can tell everyone what your top two or three predictions will be for the cannabis industry. Sure. I think uh, I think there's going to be a um, increased focus on non-THC cannabinoids as time progresses, and that's a, a big focus of ours is how the rare cannabinoids and and how even some of the primary ones like CBD fit together to create different use occasions. Uh, and and people will start realizing that there's a little bit more differentiation that can come in here, and you'll see us uh, come out with different innovations that highlight that. Uh, I think you'll continue to see a lot of international progress in the medical market, and I think uh, you know we're we're looking for quite a few countries to come online in the next uh, next few months uh, in Europe, and I think Europe is is going to be a big focus for the latter. Sorry, the, the second half of uh, 2018 and beginning of 2019, it will be uh, one of the largest markets to come online, and will come online relatively quickly. Great. This is Mike Gornstein, who's the President and CEO and Chairman of the Kronos Group. Thanks a lot for your time today, Mike. Thank you. 
You have been listening to the Innovators Behind Disruption, a podcast series brought to you by Evolve ETFs. Remain educated, be informed, sign up for our newsletter and learn more at evolveetfs.com.